Good morning, good morning. My name is Andrea Simonchov, and you're listening to Pull Up a Chair on IsraelNewsTalkRadio.com. Uh, I'm always sensitive to saying IsraelNewsTalkRadio.com, but yesterday, a client said to me, where can I see the show? What can I, you know, how can I listen in? So I hope that Barbara is listening in this morning because I wrote very specifically on her receipt, IsraelNewsTalkRadio.com. So ultra sensitive to it. Um, let's get started. First of all, we're going to start this morning by saying happy birthday, happy Gregorian birthday to truly, um, I would say, top three, one of the top three people in my world, well, top four, and that is dearest Kathy. So happy birthday, Kathy, not only a loyal listener, but a loyal 54-year friend. So God bless you. Continue. Go from strength to strength. Okay, so um, this week we're going to talk a lot about Parsha, the, the Torah portion about Korach. And we'll get to that a little bit later. But I wanted to just preface, I am here. I, I'm, I had a vacation this week, a beautiful vacation. And to anybody who has never taken a vacation or said, yeah, I've been on vacations. Nice. Nice back. Great to be back to reality. I have to tell you, it took me about 48 hours to de-vacation. And I promised myself during this great period of respite that I was going to try to bring some of that peace, some of that quiet, some of that time of really glorious reflection back to my, quote, real life, unquote. And um, I hope that that's reflected in today's program, certainly in terms of gratitude, sharing this precious time together. Uh, We've all heard the term, killing time. What did you do? I walked around the mall to kill time. Personally, I think malls are edifices, uh, really temples of time killing. But I digress. Is there anything more criminal than slaying, destroying, annihilating the most precious commodity that every one of us has, even on a vacation. Are we rejuvenating? Are we enjoying deep, wonderful, freeing conversations Places can we go mentally, emotionally, spiritually to places that we sometimes don't have the luxury of going to? Um, Are we using our bodies more, our holy, glorious vessels of God's will? Are we eating better, laughing more, tickling, tickling that humor, that humor, I want to say that humor bone, the funny bone we call it, right? Hitting the elbow and the knee, but really the funny bone, seeing all that we have, all that's glorious, all we've been given. So the idea of killing time weighed very, very heavily on me this week. Came back to work, and um, I must say, there was one dark spot during this five-day, four-night respite. And, oh, but Andrea, where did you go? Thank you for asking. Went up north, one of my, my happy place. You know, people say my happy place. Who was it? Somebody does a happy dance. I went to my happy place where I did my happy eating and did a happy dance. and I did happy swimming in um, an area of Eretz Israel on the border, on the Mediterranean, up north, just below the bottom lip of Lebanon, uh, the highest, I think it's the highest village up on the, uh, the west coast of Israel, and it's called um, Rosh HaNikra, Rosh HaNikra, and I was on a beach called Betzet, camping out, wore the same thing for days, in a bathing suit, uh, covered with dresses, and crazy, I managed to get, I managed to do some real damage in the sun, don't do that. Use your SPF, boys and girls. But um, everything was great until I got a poison pen letter from someone with whom I'm, I've you know had a thirty year friendship. 
a co-journalist. I had written an article yet to be published, and uh, this this was uh, this is an artist, somebody who does my illustrations, and I was talking about the judicial reform. We all know anybody listening in has followed up and listened to Israel's um, back and forth and the splitting, the calls for "God help us," wasted language, the calls of civil war, for shame, for shame. And the great pilug, the great chasm between the Israeli right and left. And I wrote an article about it. Not a particularly deep article. I wrote about my sadness. My sadness to see us not listening to one another. My sadness, I, was, I wrote an article about, uh, it was the same article, having spoken with a client who is far more to the left than I am. And yet equally Torah observant, uh, a religious Jewish woman, but much more to the left. I tend to fall much more to the right. And we had this wonderful conversation. And both of us sheepishly also discussed the sadness we had coming from our camps, our respective camps. And I wrote this article. It was really an article about the shared heartbeat. And I received a letter filled with expletives that need not be repeated on this holy station about my stupidity, the sinking of this country, what the right wing of this country apparently wants, and what this writer spelled out. I could barely read. I was so shocked. I mean, like flies were flying down my throat, little gnats, talking about how Israel, the current government, wants to create an apartheid state. I mean, the language was flying, an apartheid state, a Taliban state, where his daughters wouldn't be permitted to dress as they wanted, where Sabbath would be imposed upon them, where they wouldn't be able to eat what they want and believe what they want. And then started to name names on the Israeli right who are worse than, God forgive me for even repeating such things, worse than Hitler. And I'm reminded of a story, and I immediately I'm sitting on the beach, getting a mild case of sunstroke, and I said to my husband, oh, the worst part about this was, he didn't even write this just to me. He cc'd all the editorial staff of the magazines for which I write. So again, people who are ignorant of the situation here, hear this absolutely blasphemous article. And I wanted to say, did you, did you read what I wrote? I mean, I, I didn't write about any of the points. I wrote about a conversation between two women coming together and sharing our great hopes and our great aspirations for this glorious country as we come from two very different political camps. Because what is what unites us? Our faith in HaKadosh Baruch Hu, the Holy One, blessed be He. But he never read that. And he publicly made this attack using the foulest language. And I wanted to respond. I wanted to go crazy. Did you even read the article? What I really would have said? How dare you? Our friendship, blah, blah, blah. And to publicly, you know, besmirch me on and on and on and on. And my husband told me a story. And he told me a story about a donkey and a tiger that were walking together in the forest. And the donkey said to the tiger, look at that beautiful lawn. It's blue. And the tiger said to him, what do you mean it's blue? It's green. He said, no, 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 it's blue. He said, it's definitely green. And the tiger said, you know what? Let's go to the king of the forest. And together they went to the lion the pride, the head of the pride. And they said, oh, lion, oh, Lord, lion, what color is the lawn? This donkey says it's blue. And the donkey said, and this idiot tiger says it's green. And the donkey said, and the lion looks out and he said, it's blue. And smugly, the donkey hopped off. Immediately, the tiger turns to the lion and he says, do you believe that it's blue? He says, no, 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 it's green. He said, well, why did you say that? And he said, 
some arguments are so foolish. Some interactions are so fruitless and pointless and no one is going to change their mind. Don't participate. Just move on. Are we really listening to each other? Are we even willing to listen to something that makes us uncomfortable? I told you once, every week I read an article called Voices from the Arab Press. Very difficult for me. But I make it my business to read the Voices from the Arab Press. Sometimes I'm delighted. Sometimes I, I'm affirmed. But nevertheless, to listen to each other, but not to shame one another. And some days, just let someone tell you. Let them not hear you. Let them not reason. Let them not discuss. And just let them believe that indeed, the lawn, the forest is blue. When we come back, we're going to talk about, actually, we're going to connect to this. When we come back, I'm going to talk to you and ask you some of your thoughts about being put in a box. Where do you fall? What is your camp? What are your beliefs? Who are you? My name is Andrea Simichov, and I'll see you on the other side. Hello, little moment of passion shared. This show is very intimate, don't you think? If you want to share some of your thoughts, some of your feelings about the show, about life in general, about feelings of isolation with your belief systems uh, within the community or the, uh, yeah, within the community you're, you're, you're currently living, drop me a note, Andrea at IsraelNewsTalkRadio.com. Uh, love to hear it, love to get your mail, and love to interact. Okay, came across a, um, hold on, holding my mic. Oh, so I'm reading a novel. Doesn't I'm not going to tell you the name of the novel. Picked it up out of our book kiosk. And of course, my books that I pick up become so dog-eared because I really don't get to read as much as I'd like to except for on the Sabbath. And on the Sabbath, I'm not underlining, I'm not marking. So I tend to put in a lot of toothpicks in my books. I'm never without a toothpick. Toothpicks and folding a page. And I came across just this lovely line. It was a conversation between a hospice nurse and her patient. And he's very cantankerous. Not the story, but just this very simple line. And he looks at her and he's so mean. He fights and he said, um, oh no, sorry. This is somebody else. One, one fellow says in the book and he says, you've got a bone to pick. I should hear you out. My psychiatrist says all the time that people who care about me are worth paying attention to. People who care about me are worth paying attention to. I think that's something we could take into into our Sabbath. People who care about us, when they have something to say to us, lower the ego, listen, listen hard. Really, it is certainly something that I struggle with, and I know that I'm not alone. Romparoo moment. We have listening in today. Uh, U.S. is with us. I think we have California and definitely New York. Remember, again, happy birthday, Kathy. Germany is with us this morning. Australia. Is it afternoon there yet? Soon. Boketover is Israel. South Africa is with us. We had some very interesting South African exchanges this week. Did we not? When you know, you know. And Austria is with us today. Very nice. Okay. Oh, and also the Republic of Georgia. Very nice. Okay. So I was thinking about a box, you know, so often, certainly in the, even I hate this term, this orthodox Jewish world, you know, we say, um, you know, what are you modern orthodox? Are you 
Are you orthodox machmir, meaning the stricter? Are you reform? Are you conservative? Are you a liberal? Are you a Democrat? Are you a New Age? Are you Karlbachian? And um, I found, I, I read an article, very nice, and it really encapsulated, I just, I outlined a couple of things that I wanted to share with you that um, this rabbi that I've been following, not going to name him today because I think I'll be talking, I hope, I'm hoping to actually interview him. But anyway, his Rebbe had sent his children to Haredi schools. And I've known people who have done this, who have been actually more on the modern Orthodox um, end of the spectrum or on the bell curve of modern Orthodoxy and who sent their children to more Haredi, what we call blacker yeshivas. Uh, again, all terms, just bear with me. Let's not pick pick apart those bones. But those of you who know what I'm talking about, you know, this stricter. And one of the reasons I had a friend who did this for many years, she was very modern Orthodox. She wasn't actually modern. They were real, real salt of the earth. They they lived in in the places that always come up on the news, the places that the the our enemies would say we shouldn't be living in and they lived there and they sent their children to these very very what we call Haredi yeshivas knowing that they would come back because they wanted them they said they're going to be faced with a life of modernity they said somebody once pointed to the mother who said to me you know when you're making a spoon or you're making a fork if you've ever seen the process they bend it all the way one way and then they bend it all the way the other way until they find the middle ground. And this friend of mine and her husband believed that if they started in where they felt was the central, very often we become less of who we could have been. You know, what was the line from, from Streetcar Named Desire? Stanley, was it Stanley Kowalski? I could have been a contender. Um, actually, it wasn't from Streetcar. Anyway, um, so they would send to the more strict schools so that they could, when they faced the more liberal world, hopefully they would find the parents' middle ground and grow from there. So here was this rabbi who sent his children to Haredi schools, and he himself taught in very progressive women's institutions. And so when he was asked where he belonged, how can you, how can you have your children who you're raising Haredi uh, and you yourself teach in this, this this modern institution. Who exactly are you? And his answer very simply was, you can put me in a box when I'm dead. Until then, don't try to make me fit neatly into one of your labels. And I was thinking about that more and more. It's like we can't deal with people unless they come with a, a, a something written on their forehead telling us, where they are, even as they're alive, everything from politics, religion, to the way they dress is just portrayed as simple, labeled, and let's move on. You know, whether it's, and, and according to this rabbi, I love this, he put it really in, in succinctly. He said, when we're talking about gun control, health care, the economy, the Arab-Israeli conflict, women's roles in Judaism, you know, and I say even the abortion issue, you know, extremists have just lined up and they want us to believe that we have to view these issues and almost any other as this or that. You're either with me, you're against me. You either totally get it or you're totally insane. The camps have been set up and in our world, you have to fit neatly into one of them. What was that wonderful? They have that wonderful, if one or many scenes from Fiddler on the Roof, when they're talking to Tevi the milkman, and he's listening, and he goes, you know, he's right. And then the other one is speaking, and he goes, he's also right. And then he goes, how can they both be right? And then I think someone looks at him and says, you know what? You're right. And I'm remembering, remembering those horrible election periods in the United States where if you had the temerity to sit and say, Donald Trump really did some wonderful things during that period of time, and please understand, for the state of Israel, and it couldn't be denied in Israel that we felt safer, more protected. 
less defensive during that period, what happened was we were suddenly, we were, we were, we were, we were, we were racists, we were misogynists, we were purveyors of hate. How many people dumped me? And I must tell you, if you were a regular listener of this show, I spoke very little about the, the then president of the United States. You had to come back and say, yeah, but you know, he really is a sexist pig. And, and you know what? I'm not talking about his character. It was the back and forth. You had to love, adore him, or reject him and hate him. What? What is the problem with nuance? What is the problem with feeling comfortable for at least short chunks of time with shades of gray by having our feelings shift, but being vibrant human beings, or as one of my beloved teachers would say, human becomings. And in the word becoming is being. Everybody's got to be in a team. Republicans, Democrats, conservatives, liberals, reform, orthodox, party line. Moshe wrote 13 Torahs, one corresponding with each of the 12 tribes. And the 13th was to be put into that Aaron, the, the, the ark, so that if somebody wanted to distort any of the, uh, to distort any of the 12 Torahs, it would be checked against that 13th Torah for authenticity. And I forgot this. The base Hamikdash, our holy temple, had 13 gates. One corresponding with each tribe of 12 tribes. But the 13th gate were for those of us who didn't know what tribe they descended from. Once there was a 13th gate and a 13th Torah, why do we need then the original 12? Maybe, and you can think about it and let me know what you think. The message is that each tribe, every camp, every point of view deserves to exist, deserves to be heard in isolation. But diverse points of view also have to recognize and allow for that 13th gate for those who can't easily fit into one of the existing tribes, existing gates, existing places, existing labels. I am entitled not to fit into a box and you are entitled not to fit into a box. But more than that, is it really wrong if somebody is so overly certain of their point, their point of view to ask, did you hear me? Can I say it again? Can we know that we don't know? There's a difference between having convictions and advocating for a particular point of view and overdoing things. Something to think about. My name's Andrea Simintov. I'm going to think about it until we meet on the other side. Okay, we're back. Andrea Simintov, pull up a chair, IsraelNewsTalkRadio.com. I want to just, um, you know, we are, you know, I'm, I'm having a lot of fun today, too much fun. Be responsible. Let me just fix this mic here. Yeah. All right. You hear the click, click, click. Um, I just wanted to finish on that point because it really, it unnerved me this week. But unner- nothing, there are no accidents. I truly believe I don't believe, I know, everything that happens is for a reason, and there's not a moment in our day that does not provide a growth opportunity. And um, so 
again, that, that situation that unnerved me, you know, why? There, we run into situations all the time. Somebody unnerves me in the supermarket. Somebody cuts their head. Somebody says, I was here. Somebody opens up, opens up a bag of cookies, takes three cookies, and leaves it on the shelf. I wish that that didn't happen in Israel, but I would be, I would be disingenuous if I told you that it didn't happen. Okay, someone cuts you off in traffic. It doesn't sit and take a week for me to say, oh, blah, blah, blah. but um, again, this this being fit into a box, being somebody assuming that they know what you feel, and it brings us back to you know the story of. Um, um, Yitzchak. Um, when Yitzchak, um, sorry, let's keep it um, Yitzchak. Isaac. Okay. When Isaac realizes that he has been duped, he's been fooled by his pure son. And I know that this is a Torah portion. Listen, I know that we say, God said it. We did it. But there's a reason we read the Torah. Not only in every single synagogue in the world, but we read it every year. It's not a novel. Did you read Gone with the Wind? I read Gone with the Wind. I don't have to read it three times. But we read the Torah, the same Parsha, the same portion every year. Because sometimes, sometimes we're disturbed. Sometimes we're confused. Sometimes we need to dig deeper or get a different perspective from one of the sages. But when Isaac realized that it was Jacob who was fooling him, Jacob, what does the Torah say? He was seized with a very violent trembling. And so the Midrash tells us that what was this panic and fear? It was greater than when he was being offered by his father on the altar, when Avraham took him to shecht him, to slaughter him at God's command. More than that? What shook Yitzchak Isaac so profoundly? So Rabbi Chaim Shmulevitz explains that Isaac had held the opinion that Yaakov, Jacob, was too pure, too innocent, too naive. He couldn't even survive the diaspora and withstand his hatred of his enemies. He placed his bets on Esav as the Esav, what do you say, Esau? In English, Esau. Let me say Esau. I can't do the other one. As the one who would operate, fight back, be creative, use some chicanery, and ultimately continue his father's legacy. Isaac fiercely clung to that conviction. But when Yaakov, Jacob, fooled him and he was proven wrong, something happened. The box was broken. Isaac was forced to confront the reality that the very thing he was so certain about, he was so clear about, he so knew, was wrong. 180 degrees off. He had crafted this worldview, this vision, assumption, and made choices around a truth that turned out to be inaccurate. And that realization shook him even more than the, the, the idea, the prospect of having been offered on the altar. So what do we learn from this? You know, we shouldn't wait for the things we're overconfident about to be wrong. We can feel less certain to begin with. We should feel less certain. And by that, to say, I don't know. I don't know enough about this religion. I don't know enough about my customs. I don't know enough about my history. That's a recipe. The I don't know, teach me more will help us avoid the panic, the shame, the regret. If we want to see blessings in our thinkings, in our judgment, in our relationships, in our lives, not only do we need to have a Rebbe, and I don't mean a rabbi, I mean a teacher, a guide, a source for our questions, I will even venture to say we need more than one Rebbe. The community of those who managed to go through that 13th gate need to speak up and speak out. We don't need to be pulled into these, these boisterous, bombastic, 
superficial superficial positions and conclusions just because it makes us more comfortable or convenient. There are some of us who are trying to maintain a commitment to nuance, to appreciating and respecting the complexity, who can still see the merit, the value, indeed the hand of God in conflicting views. Let's not be silenced by those screaming at us, writing to us, accusing us of things we did not say. There's a wonderful book was written, recently written by a gal who I think believes lives in uh, Jerusalem or Ramat Beit Shemesh and said, God didn't say that. All day, one day, we're all going to be in that box. Let's enrich our lives by not putting ourselves or others into one until then. Okay, I said my piece. I said my piece. I had 10, 10, 10 lessons for life. I'm only going to go to the 11th one I wrote. Keep your word. Honor your word. This week, uh, attended a couple of Torah uh, lessons. And one of the things that kept jumping through at me was the importance. If you say it, do it. Rabbi uh, Eliyahu Dessler in his in his anthology called Mechtav Me Eliyahu, uh, Letters from Eliyahu, talks about the power of the spoken word. If we say we're going to do something, critical that we not forget it, or even worse, backtrack and say, I can't believe I said that. It's not important. I'm not going to do that. I, what am I, what am I crazy? I have time for that. Because once it it's out, it's real. It's tangible. The word has the power to change countries, change directions, create war, to create peace. And I was thinking, I had made somebody, um, we, we're very careful um, in observant Judaism, never to say, I promise, I promise you I'll call you. I'll call you tomorrow, I promise. For exactly this reason. We say, I'll do this, without a promise, without taking a vow. So important is it. And I made a quasi-vow to somebody that I would reach out to someone on his behalf. And it was proving to be much more difficult than I had originally uh, intended. I contacted this person who was going to be a bridge. I said, I'll be a conduit. Boy, oh boy, was it difficult. I couldn't reach this man that I was trying to reach. I was having a very big problem making the shidduch. And part of me was saying, you know, he can do this himself. Why do I have to do this? Because that was convenient. Because my word was becoming increasingly inconvenient. And last night I thought about how many of us kill time I could do a crossword puzzle or honor my word. I could paint my toenails or honor my word. I could make a Sabbath menu, certainly a holy endeavor, or honor my word. And once I addressed that which was uncomfortable, you know I'm going to reach this guy and he's going to say, who am I? Or even worse, he'll know who I am from an uncomfortable period of my life. And maybe he'll think, I'm not going to do her in. on and on. All the reasons why I shouldn't, all the reasons why I couldn't. And I did it. And you know how long the entire mitzvah that I had delayed took? 33 seconds. 33 seconds to forge a holy conduit between two individuals who need to do something together. And I took three weeks of second guessing. Don't be like that. Honor your word and run, run run. Okay, we're not going to talk about college graduation speeches, celebrating anti-Semitism, celebrating a made-up cause. Here we go. Here we go. Stay with me. I really do so much prep here. Here we go. <laughs> As I said before, find yourself a Rebbe. 
you know, in describing Korach's revolt against the authority of Moses, um, it stated that Korach, remember Korach comes up and says, you know, who are you? Who are you? We're all holy. Who made you such a leader? Okay. And, and Korach was a very wealthy guy. He was a very, I'm trying to think who today, I don't want to waste too much time doing this, but who today we can compare somebody who thinks he's, he's a contender, a world leader. Um, I believe that in the original 1954, it was excellent. The movie, the 10 commandments, I think it was Cecil B. DeMille made a movie 19, 19- 54. It was indeed an epic starring, you know, who else? Charlton Heston as Moses. And who played Korach other than Edward G. Robinson, the Jewish actor, Edward G. Robinson. And it was such a wonderful stereotype. And that's the danger of media and danger of outside influence, because here I am reading the Torah portion and I see short, fat, goateed Edward G. Robinson saying, who appointed you, Moses? Okay, um, I digress. Um, so Korach argues that the entire nation is equally holy, meaning that we were all present at the foot of Sinai. We all received the same Torah directly from Hashem. Why, he asks, should Moses alone be the final authority on all matters of Jewish law? Shouldn't every individual have the right to interpret the Torah according to his own understanding? That attitude. Have we not spoken about it today? Not even in nuance? Any intelligent human wants others to respect his intelligence and prefers to keep his independence in making decisions that affect him. We know that with three-year-olds, two-year-olds who clamp down their spoon. I'm not going to eat that. People don't like being subservient to others. And according to the tradition recorded in the Talmud, um, and as I mentioned before, if you want, I have a friend in California. You know who you are, Todd. Very often you ask for the sources. So drop me a note if you want the sources. I got them all. But anyway, at the occasion of the standing together at Har Sinai, I mean, just imagine it. Clouds, a gentle rumble, and yet silence. A silence that is in exact opposition to crowd control. And they're standing together. And what happens? According to this portion of the Talmud, Hashem actually had to force the Torah upon the Jewish people by threatening to bury them alive if they did not accept it. Now, not just I, but other commentaries have a lot of difficulty with that statement because the Torah seems to be saying explicitly that the entire Jewish nation accepted the Torah at Har Sinai out of their own free will, right? Didn't you hear that? I heard that. He went to this people, that people. What does it say? We'll say it, not save it, Nishma, we'll do and we'll listen. So why does the Talmud say that it had to force it upon them? So in the Medrash Tachuma, um, it suggested that maybe the two passages refer to the above, the above passages, you know, had to be forced on them and they grabbed it. The people were prepared to accept what we call the Torah, um, the written Torah, as it comes directly from Hashem. God, people don't find it so humiliating to humble themselves before God. God said it, I do it, that settles it. But they were not that keen. Again, we come to the Talmud. They were not that keen on accepting what we call the Torah Shebal Peh, the oral Torah, which includes so much rabbinic input. And the main principle is, um, is, is interpreting God's word. And so this aspect of the Torah dictates that one person's view is binding upon another, i.e. your opinion counts more than mine. Oh my gosh, for people, for those of us, Certainly for me, that's a little bit of a bitter pill to swallow. The Jewish people, we just gained our freedom from Egypt. We are not yet ready. We are not yet to prepare, prepare to accept one rabbi's role in developing this oral Torah. 
Therefore, God had to force that Torah Shebel Peh, the oral Torah, upon us. And generations later, after that miracle of Purim occurred, the rabbis instituted that first mitzvah. The first mitzvah, I didn't know that. I didn't even know this. So we're learning together. We say the mitzvah mid Rabbanan was the reading of the Megillah. At that time, according to the tradition of the Talmud, B'nai Yisrael accepted anew the oral Torah. This time, indeed, out of their own free will. The rabbis of that generation, what we call the Anshei Knesset Hagadola, they established these texts of blessings and prayers and standardized observance and indeed order of the mitzvot, the commandments. Um, let's see, I found that very interesting. So, you know, we sometimes hear from religious people in our own circles uh, certainly from my school of where I sit religiously, that ever since, you know, say the passing of, there were so many adherents, so many students of Rabbi Salavechik, who so many said was in the modern Orthodox world, the last great Rebbe, when he passed away, there was so much talk that there was no one around for whom they can um refer their uh, their questions, what we call Shilos, their questions. And many people use the passing of Rabbi Salavechik historically as an excuse to ignore the brilliant interpretations, the, the brilliant, uh, how do you say, Pasquet, um, decisions of the contemporary sages. And then what happens? We end up making our own decisions, justifying ourselves, arguing that everyone in our generation is entitled, as Korach, to express their opinions equally. Everyone has equal authority. Mm, mm, mm. That's the Korach view, who stated that the entire nation is holy. The tragedies, the difficulties that befell the Jewish people in the desert of Sinai, what happens? This week they continue to multiply. They're going on and on. Sad stories, unique personalities, affected by what? A lack of modesty, notsanua, human ambition, jealousy, and if I dare say, a complete misreading of one's true role in family and society. Korach he actually sees himself as being a greater person than he really is. He's convinced that he is the absolute equal, on equal ground, a rival to Moses and Aaron. And he is entitled to the same degree of leadership that they enjoy. He's not satisfied that he's the head of one of those powerful family of Levites in performing the service in the, the Mishkan, the, the tabernacle and the temple. False leaders, like Korach really is, he's a caricature of false leadership surrounding himself with other malcontents, also interested in what? With no answer, only desires to destabilize leadership of the people for his own personal, psychological, and too oftentimes financial gain. And you, we know that in every society, there are those who are sat, dissatisfied with their lot in lot life. It doesn't matter how much they have, with what they've been blessed materially, academically. Their frustration translates it into episodes of anger, vilification of other peoples, and especially the leadership of the current society. Revolutions, very popular. And those who lead them continually promise, they promise, we have it in our own modern times, a new society, a utopian society. Tell me, have any of us ever seen it realized? Any student of history? Instead, typically we see tyranny and oppression of others at the ends of these revolutions. Jealousy, dissatisfaction, the human story, no matter who our leaders are, whatever type of society and social norm is currently in power, 
frustration, arrogance always spawns further frustration and the inability to listen to one another, to disagree. The inability to disagree and yet celebrate the holiness of another human being by mere virtue that he was created, but Selim Elohim in God's image. We lambaste each other. Truly, we are our own worst enemies. The punishment that was visited upon Korach and his followers is their complete elimination from society. Completely. It's as though the Torah is unaware that there is no society, is aware, forgive me. It's like the Torah is telling us, beating the tom-toms to tell us that there is no society or leadership that can really ever satisfy a people who are professional malcontents. It's not only individuals that are swallowed up and extinguished, but throughout history, it's recorded that ideas, movements, political parties, immoral social norms are subject to extinction. Human history, Jewish history, no exception. Littered with debris of failed personal ambitions and stupid, the grass is blue, disputes and social divisions. Please, this Torah portion reminds us to learn benefit from the mistakes and stupid pursuits of others. You know, this rebellion, the Meshachachma, I believe I uh, mentioned him before, but it says that Korach, and again, Korach as a person and Korach as a symbol, he's simply denying the authority of God. And Moshe says, the words of Moshe, Moshe, the quietest, the man who measured every word because speaking was indeed difficult for him. What does he say? If these men die the common death of all men, then God has not sent me. Because Moses realizes that it was God who was the target of Korah's action. And the extreme measures had to be applied. The original claim, we're all equal. We're all buddies. It was a facade. That underlying threat was to God's supremacy. Everyone who witnessed his public opposition also witnessed, witnessed his public execution by heaven. Lost my place here. Um, B'nai Yisrael, the children of Israel, they knew, now they knew what penalty awaited those who would follow in Korach's footsteps. Ha'emek Devar and others, one of the sages, they use a different approach. They say that Korach and his followers allowed their mouths to run wild. And so too, did the mouth of the earth open to extract retribution? Because that's what happened. The mouth of the earth, it must have been terrifying. Those of us who have ever seen photographs or videos of a sinkhole and gasped and were unable to avert our eyes because of the horror, imagine that tenfold. It's not so much the act itself of the earth opening that frightened them, the fact that the ultimate punishment could be exacted on speech alone, the sounds of their mouths and what their mouths uttered. Why was it necessary? Why such a terrible, staggering, awesome, and not in the good way, death? Korach. He was a wealthy man and his wealth is what led him to conceit. And it was conceit that led him to the chutzpah, the nerve, the moxie of such unbridled challenges. 
to Moses's leadership. Unlike his 250 followers who were burned, Karach had to be devoured along with his possessions in order to demonstrate the corrupting powers of wealth and indeed the consequences. You know, a common denominator emerges from all of the above mentioned commentaries and I have to, it's very fundamental that we recognize this lesson here. This is the first time that a threat to God's very existence is brought directly to mo- both um, Aaron and um, Klal Yisrael, the people of Israel. A great, miraculous punishment was meted out in the form of a great devouring. And you know, from these readings, not only are we made aware of the inherent wrongness of denying a fundamental tenet, tenet of our religion, but we also have to be attentive not to cause other innocents to question their own beliefs as well. It's often said the three most important words in the human language are, I love you, and I say not so. There are other sentences of three words. One is, I don't know, and another is, tell me more. My name is Andrea Simintov. Thank you. We have a lot to talk about on Shabbos. And I wish you a Shabbat Shalom Umivorach from Jerusalem. And stay holy.